Welcome to the Learning Can't Wait podcast, a Full Mind production. At Full Mind, our vision is to ensure every child has access to an exceptional education. Each episode, we will be joined by pathfinders within and around the education space who are bringing about transformational change on behalf of deserving students. I am your host, Haley Spearbauer. Welcome back, everybody, to the Learning Can't Wait podcast. I am so excited to have you here with me today. We have an incredible guest that I have been really looking forward to interviewing. It is Michelle Oliva, the co-founder of Edge Dream. Michelle, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. It's absolutely my pleasure. I Love a good podcast introduction from a previous guest. As you know, Ellen Sherratt introduced us, and I will take a recommendation of Ellen's any day. So thank you, Ellen, for the introduction to Michelle. And once again, I'm so excited you're here. Yes, Ellen's a great person, and I'm glad that she connected us, and I'm looking forward to this conversation. So Michelle, I will ask you our very first question, which is, how did you come to be the personal and professional version of yourself? Yes, it's a great question. Um, so I am, as you mentioned, the co-founder of EduDream, which is a Latina-owned, woman-founded um, education, research, and consulting organization. And we partner with nonprofits, foundations, and other educational organizations that are looking for culturally responsive and community-centered research and strategy. And how did we? I get to this point? Um, I will say that it wasn't a very clear, obvious path. Uh, I don't think that when I was in high school or in college, I knew that this was a position or a field, but my um, college experience definitely shaped me and made me reflect a lot on the importance of equitable access to educational opportunities. And so from that, I think education and understanding who has access, the quality of the schools became really important to me. And it was something that I really wanted to look into and understand. And I was um, a public policy major and really in sort of the sociology, social sciences in undergrad and, and graduate school. And so it was sort of a, <clears throat> a natural to some extent transition at that point to really merge my um, college and, and graduate training with something that was really personal and passion and the, and the passion for me, which is understanding uh, and, and answering big questions to inform policy. You know, I so much of our experiences as the professionals we are today are grounded in our own schooling. You mentioned that college had a really profound impact on your career path and your personal path. Can you talk a little bit more about how and what the how and the what of the formative years of college for you that really drove you into the important work you're doing today? Yeah, I think it's important to share a little bit about um, my personal background. So my parents immigrated to the United States, to Chicago specifically, um, in their 20s from Guatemala, which is in Central America. And um, I was born in the US, but very much uh, 
a daughter of immigrants, so I spoke Spanish at home, English in school, and uh, attended Chicago Public Schools from kindergarten through high school. Um, when I got to high school, I did have the option at that time, um, Chicago Public Schools had the uh, option where you could apply to a selective high school. I don't know that they called it that. It not it's not it wasn't as competitive as it is I, from what I hear now. But there was that option, and and I opted for that and applied to go to a different high school than my neighborhood high school, um, just for based on my um, siblings' experiences there and kind of what I wanted in, in a high school. Safety was really important and academics. Um, going to school and being a good student and learning was just something that I was in control of. I was sort so I thought, <laughs> and that I thought, you know, I'm, I'm a pretty good student. Um, I love to learn. So that was important. And um, from my high school, which was Lang Tech, for those who are in Chicago, I went to the University of Chicago. And that was a huge transition for me. Um, I thought I was prepared. And then I got there and realized, oh, I haven't read the books that many of the students here have read. I have not written to the level that, you know, I'm expected to be able to write. I have not engaged in conversations, <laughs> dialogue around these like issues or topics, you know, or discuss novels out loud. I mean, to some extent I had done that in high school, but not, it was very intimidating um, at that time, you know, just to be able to voice your thoughts and and your analysis of text out loud in a discussion group or to really write the way the university expected you to write. They have a whole manual on how to write. Um, and it was very intense experience. And I would say it was a mentally and emotionally and academically challenging experience. And um I think I realized that first year, like I am not as prepared as I thought I was for college. And so that was scary. Um, I think the other thing that was scary is that I, you know, had, um, I went to a high school that was very culturally um, diverse. So there were students from every background. And then I went to the University of Chicago. And at that time, and I don't know if it's still the case, but there were very few Latinos or st students of color. And um, so it was really easy <laughs> to find one another. But I also think that that was a, a big factor because it was a bit intimidating. Um, I did feel kind of not alone, but I didn't feel like I could ask for help. I didn't know how to navigate college support. I didn't know that I could ask. I was almost embarrassed. Like I can't go to tutoring because that means I don't know. And I'm supposed to know, and I'm supposed to do this alone. And so I just, I don't think I understood how, how to um, leverage <laughs> like study groups or tutoring or any of the services. And so I think that that really spoke to kind of my experience of just you know, understanding, like, can I do this? Am I smart enough? And really, I think what shifted for me in college was um, I had to really get uh, mentally strong to some extent and change my mindset of 
no, I don't know everything, but I have the ability to learn it, whatever it is. <laughs> and so once I did that around my sophomore year, I I think then really blossom. And I, you know, once you get through your first year or two there, it's almost like you're going to be okay. <laughs> but yeah, that was a, a tough experience, I would say, in terms of just isolation and just um, at that time, the culture at the university was very much sink or swim. So, you know, and there was just a lot happening in terms of student support, um, mental health, and that was going un, um, unattended. First of all, Michelle, I want to just thank you for your vulnerability and sharing so much of yourself with the listeners of the podcast. Um, you know, the experience you're sharing here sounds extremely trying and extremely challenging. And you, at one of the points that really stuck out to me was your understanding of the experience as, in the moment as something you had to navigate alone. And that feeling of isolation and aloneness can be, I, I can imagine, must have really tried your confidence and really wondering like, is this the place for me? Is this what I'm meant to do? You know, you now on the kind of fast forward a little bit, um, but just still reflecting on the statements you made about your experience in college, you now are in a position to evaluate the inclusiveness, the culturally responsiveness, the, the way that organizations um, and foundations are set up to support students who may feel the same way you have felt. How does the role you play now, or how do you hope that the role you play now impacts students who may be feeling like you did when they were in college or high school? Yeah, that's a great transition to our our approach here at EduDream to a program evaluation and research, which is really grounded in what is called Cree or culturally responsive and equitable um, evaluation or research. Um, and, and these are principles and it's not a method, but more so an approach to how you go about implementing your research or evaluation methods. And it's really ground, the, the Cree is really grounded on recognizing and sort of the historical and structural factors that have impacted those that you are really seeking to understand and that the program is really centered around. And that typically tends to be, um, for the most part, I would say highly vulnerable populations and students of, of high need or you know students of color or students from low income backgrounds. And so really it's important to center um, there and understand the history of how perhaps they, their families, their community um, got to be positioned in, in the sort of conditions that they're living in, whether it's, you know, access to health, access to education. So all of that is really important in our work of before we um, start to even collect data, we really want to understand who are we evaluating like who's part of this program what's what's the history there with um, that community and the program or just that community in general um, and then really making sure that we ask whose voices are being included in the research and really working to elevate the voices of those that are going to be most impacted 
and yet are the least likely to be elevated. Um, and so that's really our approach to research and evaluation. And I think it very much aligns with maybe, I was never asked as a student, like, what do you need? It was just like, well, here's everything, like figure it out. And I think, very yeah, yeah. And I think yeah. it's so important to, to ask and ask in a way that isn't um, intimidating, that isn't um, sort of outing you like, oh, you don't know, you don't, you know, you don't know how to do this, but really it comes from a, a place of humility of really wanting to understand um, and also making sure that you know, part of what we're there for as evaluators is to ensure that the program is actually speaking to the needs of those that it's seeking to serve. And it's not built on assumptions of what um, those individuals may need. And that it's really recognizing the assets of and strengths of those that it's serving as well. And so not to look at it from a deficit perspective of like, well, they're in need of everything, you know? And so really making sure that you're leveraging um, the strengths and assets of those that you're serving. How do the students respond? I, I I am a big believer in students having a seat at the table all the time, right? It, it, you cannot make decisions about people without their voice. Um, in your experience at EduDream with your team, is there, like, are students aware of the fundamental shift that you're you're really encouraging foundations and other organizations to take? Yeah, that's a great question. I don't know that they're aware, but when, and it's not just students, I'll say uh, many times it's also parents of, of the students um, that are not heard or even asked <laughs> What are their concerns? Uh, you know, how, what are Good point? Yes, yes. And so many times is really thinking about who else needs to be included, um, and who else's perspective or experiences need to be included. And I'll say that with parents, um, when we engage parents in our um, whether it's program evaluations or research, they are so grateful. It it almost seems like oh, this is a first for many of them. They don't know anyone else in their community that's a parent that's been asked. <laughs> and so in, in the way that we engage them in conversation where it's not an email, um, and I don't want to blast school districts, but I'll, I will say I get a lot of that. That's sort of how my district engages <laughs> me as a parent, right? It's like, here's all the information over email. And it's like, okay, like, Sift, 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 and but I'm not really being engaged, and there's no relationship building. And one of the things that we really um, strive to do is to build trust, and uh, in order to make it more conversational and ensure that uh, when we're asking questions, you know, because again, we are following a protocol and we are facilitating focus groups or whatever it may be, however, or interviews, however, we're collecting the data. It is important that there is trust, that there's transparency of what we're doing, who we are, what we're doing, why we're doing it, but also that they understand and know that there's value in sharing their story and that there's something going to be done <laughs> with the information that they're sharing, right? That with the stories that they're sharing. So I think that's important. And that goes back to Cree in that with parents, it's important that 
we not only engage them as part of the data collection, if they're part of the study, let's say, but also make sure that we and the client circles back with them to share out the findings and to tell them, and now based on these findings, this is what we're going to do. These are the steps we're going to take. It's so important to continue to engage stakeholders um, throughout so that they see that it's not just like taking information from them and then they don't know what happens with it. Um, so so that's part of Cree is really working, uh, informing, <laughs> encouraging our clients to really walk alongside the stakeholders and keep them either informed or even in this sort of feedback loop where they're constantly receiving feedback uh, in response to like the findings or um, the recommendations. So that, that's really key. With students is very similar. Um, we have engaged students in program evaluation studies and um, it's not to say that, oh, this is the first time we've done this and I have done this, you know, in a different time, but I think it's more about the approach of how we engage them and what we ask of them and really allowing them to share in a way that I don't think I remember students sharing before when I have been an evaluator of a program. And so I think that that's the difference. And also it's important that students that we're engaging see um, evaluators who look like them, you know, so that it's not like, so I think it helps in terms of just comfort, cultural understanding. And we're really mindful of that too, as an organization, we don't say, oh, we can do an evaluation, you know, here, there, everywhere, because we're really mindful of sort of the, the geography, the community, and if we're really the best suited to uh, engage and, and lead that evaluation, um, or if there's a, a different organization. And sometimes we'll say, you know what, th this is not for us. There's another organization that's actually located in your state and in your community who understands your community far better than, than we do and that we could. And so here's a, a referral. Um, and so I think it's really knowing when you can and when you can't. And not to say that you can't just because you don't reflect the community, but there's a learning curve and there's just importance of knowing um, the kind of the dynamics of the program. If the program is really geared towards a specific community, then I think we're much more mindful of whether or not we step into um, that work or not. That type of reflection is so valuable and sounds very aligned to the mission and vision of your organization. Tell me about the climate right now. I mean, you're working with various stakeholders. You're working with foundations and funders. You're working with schools. You're working with students and families. There's been a lot of turmoil due to COVID and the impact of COVID on the mental health of our students and families and school community members, as well as the academic progress of students during this time. How does that climate appear to you and your team? Like what, what are the implications in, in 
feelings that you're getting from all of this? Yeah, that's a big question. <laughs> There's a lot in there. It's huge. Uh, I mean, it's it's the world has changed forever, and we can never go back to what we were four years ago. And I'm curious how that's impacting in your the your space. Mm-hmm. It certainly is. I think it's something that we're very uh, aware of and continue to track. Uh, the there, there's a couple of things, right? There's the impact of COVID on students and communities. And one thing I'll say is when we engage um, educators and parents and students, they will share the impact that COVID has had on <laughs> not only themselves, but the students who are typically the, the focus of our work and the youth and um, really touch on the the mental health aspect, the, the social isolation, the learning loss, right, that has happened. But I think they talk about it more with respect to how engaged students are in learning in school, as opposed to, I think there's a lot of chatter um, online <laughs> among uh, like researchers and education leaders about NAEP scores. And yet that's not something that we're hearing when we're engaging families and, and parents. I think they're talking about it more in terms of, are they learning? Um, do they have the teachers that they, they need in the schools? Are they engaged? Like, how do we get them to kind of reacclimate to being back in the school? Um, you know, and and this this is definitely something we hear, and it's also pretty um, publicized in terms of you know student behavior and kind of the experiences that schools have had with that in the last year after students return back. I think there's been a lot of disruption, and part part of it is. <clears throat> You know, students are still trying to acclimate and transition back to being in person. And I think we have yet to take, and by we, I mean, like, all those in the education field have yet to take, like, a beat or, like, a moment or a step back to say, okay, how do we begin to make sure that educator, teachers, and students are building relationships that we're ensuring that students are building relationships with one another so that the conditions and relationships are there in order for learning to happen. And I think there's a, a quick, like we need to get to learning and which is important, but I think that without addressing all of that, it, it becomes really challenging. And, and that's why we're seeing a lot of sort of the, the disruptions within schools and classrooms um, so that's definitely what we're hearing and seeing with COVID. There's another, um, I think, sort of not as a result of COVID, but <laughs> along with COVID, there's sort of another uh, factor that emerged, which is um, I, I would say education has become highly politicized. And to some extent, you know, that um, I think, COVID offered uh, a great entry and opportunity to begin um, to have those political um, debates and discussions and 
around like whether students should be, you know, in school or not, remote learning and in-person learning. And I think from there it evolved and continues to evolve and become something bigger. And so we we keep that in mind in terms of what local, as we're working in different communities, we keep in mind what is the posture in this community around, let's say, banning books, or what is the posture around um, there's another kind of key theme here around like public schools versus private schools. Like what, what's the feeling towards the school board within this community, right? Um, what, how involved are parents and how vocal are they and what parents are vocal uh, and, and why and about what? So we definitely keep that in mind now as we're entering into work. Um, again, this is just part of our approach of really making sure that we're learning um, about the community and where they are and how they got there so that when we um, do engage in the work there, we have some understanding. And not that we know everything, but then maybe we'll have questions to clarify. Um, so we definitely, I think that has been a bit of, of what has happened for us you know, we haven't worked in states where book bans are or parent rights are kind of um, a, a big uh, factor that are blocking perhaps our <laughs> our efforts. But I will say that because there's such a need to to focus and prioritize, rightfully so, learning and what's happening in the classroom, I think there's a less um, willingness from leaders to permit researchers inside the schools. And so that's become a challenge, I would say. There's a word right there. The, pol the politicizing of education. I mean, it's not new, right? The, the, the separation between church and state and religion and schools. Like this has been a conversation for a very long time, but you know, as an educator and as a parent and as someone who's a rabid consumer of what's going on around the country, it is devastating. And the effects that it's having on the ability to educate our youth, the ability to care for our youth in like empathetic and loving ways is, is really disrupted and it's devastating. Your perspective is really valuable. I appreciate how you shared uh, what you're seeing and what you're witnessing and, and what you're paying attention to. Um, there are crises all over the United States, many of them, and, and in Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Like, you know, you can't think about assessment data if your kid doesn't have a teacher or your kid is suicidal. And I know that sounds extreme, but the the prevalence of mental health issues in students right now is at an all time high. Yeah, I just, it, sometimes I'm like, we have real, real problems before us and there are so many distractions with that. It's it's important to center ourselves. So thank you for doing that, for centering. No, definitely. Ourselves. And I'll say that with, um, you know, because there are these tensions and sometimes opposing views on uh, what direction to go, that can also be founded within uh, an evaluation study in terms of 
what are what are we trying to answer and why and for whom? And so part of Cree um, is to co-create the evaluation plan with stakeholders. And in some ways that also is really helpful because it ensures that, um, not that there aren't any surprises, but I'll say that the pers different perspectives are heard and that the plan is really being informed by those that are going to be most impacted by the results. And so that's a really key piece. It does take a lot of time upfront to, to plan that. And we actually engaged in a co-creation very recently with a group of grantees from a foundation. Um, and I really kind of tip my hat off to the foundation for even doing that. We spend about five to six months engaging in the co-creation of an evaluation plan. Um, what that meant is that we facilitated conversations with the funders to hear their perspective on the goals of the evaluation, what they wanted to learn and why. Um, and then we also had a sort of deep uh, <laughs> interview with uh, each grantee uh, to understand their initiative, their work, and then kind of brought that together and started the bones of an evaluation plan and then held um, and facilitated working sessions with the grantees only to really uh, further like flesh out the evaluation, um, not only questions, but data sources, which is really important. Um, I think that that's different from my past experience as an evaluator um, in the past, we would, and I say we, <laughs> but there would be um, RFPs for an evaluation. And then the the, the the sort of reaction is like, we're going to propose everything, you know, that sounds great and is highly robust and rigorous. And that's really great. It's needed in the field, but there wasn't a moment to pause and ask what data exists what data can the program provide? It, is this really viable? And so many times, once we would get to that component of the evaluation in my previous life, like we would hit a lot of roadblocks because the data didn't exist, weren't in the, the structure or format it needed. There was no amount of cleaning that would get it there. And so there were gaps and so all of that um, and so with co-creation of an evaluation plan, we really engage in conversations that are very open about what data are the grantees collecting? How are they collecting that, those data? Um, and really making sure that we're aligning the data sources um, with the questions. That doesn't mean that we don't challenge uh, and encourage and even help them build other data tools but then now we know that we have to build that into the evaluation plan. So it's a little different. I think you've like perfectly segued me here to the very last question, which would be, um, you know, I normally ask folks, what would be your advice for an educator starting their career today? But you have done a, a great job of setting me up to ask you, what advice would you give a foundation in the space, the education equity space today? Yes, I um I think 
there with evaluations, there's two things. One, um, really thinking about the time and the resources needed for co-creation and actually engaging in some of that to so that they can see the value. Um, there's more buy-in. There's also just, it's more realistic in terms of what is possible. Um, and so I think it's important to, to really invest in co-creation of evaluation plans. I also think that even if an evaluation plan has been drafted internally, I think giving more time upfront in the planning stage is important. Um, in particular, if it's going to require engaging community members, whether it's students or families or community leaders, it's really important to have that time up front. And, and the reason why is not just to reach out and say, hey, we want, want to interview you or you know, we want to survey you, but really to be able to build those relationships and that trust. Uh, and that takes time. And sometimes there isn't enough time. Uh, and so that that's important. And I would encourage them to really think about how to do that if what they're really looking to do is equity-centered um, evaluations. Michelle, you have shared so much wisdom and really centered and important conversation today on the podcast. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to join me. Thank you so much for having me. Appreciate it. I know that after meeting you and hearing you speak here today, it's given me a lot to think about, especially as we frame the conversation about um, what's working for kids and how it's working for kids. And I hope that the listeners take that away from today's episode as well. Thank you. Thank you. And thanks for everybody who joined us. Thanks for listening to the Learning Can't Wait podcast. If you like what you heard, please rate, review, and share this episode. Be the first to know when we have a new episode by subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to be a guest on the show or have a suggestion for an episode, email us at podcast at fullmindlearning.com.